Welcome to the Strong Like Mum podcast. Yay! This podcast is sponsored by Pregnacare. Pregnacare vitamin and mineral supplements provide advanced nutritional support for every stage of pregnancy, before, during and after. They include vitamin D and the exact levels of folic acid as recommended by the UK Department of Health. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Strong Like Mum podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by the wonderful Marie Louise, also known as the Modern Midwife. Marie is a practising NHS midwife, author of the Modern Midwife's Guide and creator of the Modern Midwife online antenatal courses. Marie is also a social influencer, speaker and blogger. Today, I have the opportunity to ask Marie in-depth questions about pregnancy, labour and the immediate postnatal period. Um, I sent a call out over my social media platforms and have also got a list of questions of your most frequently asked questions so I can get all the info you're after and set the record straight on some of those old wife tales that still seem to circulate the prenatal industries and confuse many of us that might be going through pregnancy. Hello, Marie, and thank you so much for joining me. Hello, thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Um, literally, the list of questions that I have is is endless. So we're going to try to squeeze this into <laughs> 30 minutes. Sure. Um, but I really appreciate your time and expertise. Just before we get started on some of those questions, um, you've been practising midwifery for over a decade and you've yeah. travelled internationally to practice in locations such as Australia, Asia, America. What is it that made you so passionate about midwifery and how do you feel about your job now after having done it for a decade? So one of my earliest memories actually was uh, seeing my mum pregnant with my little brother and I went to go and see her in the hospital after he'd been born and I remembered holding him and looking at my mum and thinking that my mum had this superpower that she could grow humans (laughs) and as I got older, I realised that pregnancy and having babies is something that women have been doing for millennia. And I was really disappointed by how little I knew about that and, how, and you know, the education system. I just felt like I didn't know enough. And, and to me, that was like a, a superhuman task to be able to perform. And people just like, oh, yeah, you know, people just get pregnant. And I was like, but how mm. do you grow another human being <laughs> inside you that has eyelashes, fingernails? like you know and I just found it incredible so I was really obsessed actually with pregnancy and my my parents both thought that I was going to be a uh, teenage mum because I had like (laughs) you know I I used to cut pictures out of magazines at like 14 years old and they were like please don't have a baby at 14 Marie um but I I just explained I'm fascinated by it it's not that I want a baby I just can't I, I don't understand this well enough like and and I just couldn't get over it Mm. so anyway off I went to just to um study midwifery I I applied when I was 17 and I got in um so I was really young it's my first ever it was my first ever job and it's all that I've ever really done so a decade later I still I'm pregnant myself with my first baby and I am still absolutely mind blown Mm. by pregnancy and birth and everything that my body's going through and all of the changes Mm. that my body's going through and you know the fact that there's an organ in there that's part me part my baby and you know I I, I literally think about this stuff every day and I just think I'm still mind blown by even a decade later but it's quite timely having my first baby myself 
do you feel um, as though it's given you sort of a whole new perspective from another side now that you're actually going through it as a patient as opposed to the midwife? Yes, I do. Um, however, I think that previously, so obviously I practiced midwifery for a long time without having gone through it myself. Mm. And I sometimes when you don't have any first-hand experience of something, you are able to be 100% open-minded because you're not applying what happened to you so if a woman came in mm. for example in labor and, uh, and she was two centimeters and she's having contractions and she's asking for for pain relief i'd have nothing to compare that to so if that woman is telling me she needs pain relief then she needs pain relief where like whereas mm. sometimes like you might apply your own experience and think oh well I, well I was fine when I was two centimeters maybe maybe she, you know she, we'll just mm. ask her to have a nice warm bath or something like that um <laughs> but for me I had nothing to compare it to and that that goes for all of the various different symptoms throughout throughout pregnancy as well now I've experienced morning sickness myself actually the, the conversations mm. that I'm having are more putting my hand on someone's shoulder and saying I know how you feel. It's absolutely mm. wretched. You know, don't worry. These are things that you can do. Whereas beforehand, I'd go down more of like a clinical explanation, whereas I, I do have that mm. ability to now offer empathy um, in a different way because yeah. of first-hand experience. But as I said, I think there are pros and cons to it because I never want to utilise mm. my personal experience in a way that's not helpful to someone else. So... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So... um. You just touched there on morning sickness and um, I really suffered with that throughout all my pregnancies, really. Um, and for me, and something I've heard said a lot from other women that I've spoken to, is that first trimester can sometimes be a really isolating place because you can't tell your work or your friends, so you can't really celebrate it. There's loads of worries about mm -hmm. what's going to happen, but there's also loads of physical changes going on. Um I feel as though there's very little support for women in the first trimester um, mm -hmm. and until you're really 12 weeks and you get that first appointment, there, there doesn't seem to be much support. What's your experience with that? And is there anything out there in the NHS or, or in the wider circle, medical circle that is supportive for women in their first trimester that perhaps women just don't know about or what would you recommend yeah so the first trimester exactly as you've described it it, it is difficult um because you're not telling people and I think that's actually for women that can be one of the most difficult things because when you have a visible bump everything kind of changes and you know talking first-hand experience like you know um people behave even people that you don't know strangers behave completely differently you know that they're, they're happy to help you and stand out of your way and do all of these um pleasant things because they can mm. visibly see that you're pregnant whereas when you are feeling awful um and nobody else knows and, and you you can't see anything externally which actually makes it more difficult um lots of women saying to me you know i'm, I'm getting all of these symptoms but it doesn't feel like it's worth it like i, I can't see any progress mm. i don't have a bump yet so I think that initially having a conversation with your midwife about how you're feeling at your booking appointment. So some women book as early as six weeks and we recommend that you book mm. by 10 weeks. And if there is something that's, that's uh, specific or unique to your pregnancy, then the, your midwives are really well trained to understand how to help you with that, how to refer you on. And when it comes to emotional support and um, well-being, 
there's a brand new fantastic tool that Tommy's charity have just launched. Okay. Um, it's a mental health digital tool for pregnancy um, and for the postnatal period as well. Okay. And um, that I think is great to download in the first trimester. So it's kind of like a self-help tool that enables you to, to see perhaps what it is that you might need right now, but also what you might need going forward. So if you address those issues in the first trimester, yeah. that's a really positive thing going forward for your pregnancy. Even when the symptoms have subsided, pregnancy hormones have a massive effect not only on us physiologically, but also on us emotionally and mentally. So when you identify yeah. your needs early on, even if the symptoms, the physical symptoms have subsided, you might need additional support for your mental health and well-being. And so by understanding that there is other support out there that you don't necessarily have to have like some sort of diagnosis of like anxiety or depression, which are the most common uh, mental health issues during pregnancy. Um, yeah. But if you would like to just use some self-help tools, that is a brilliant one to start with. And you can always, I can't, you know stress this enough you can always speak to your midwife about anything and everything well thank you so much for clarifying that I'm sure that's going to um, help lots of women and I know that certainly when I you know I struggled in that first trimester getting support but definitely I've I've been able to access a great uh, mental health support program sort of mm -hmm. as you're saying throughout the rest of my pregnancy which has been fantastic um yeah we touched on morning sickness now here's um I don't know I'm assuming a myth that I want you to dispel, but is morning sickness really a sign of a healthy pregnancy? I, you know, you hear so many people say, oh, because I would say I'm so sick. And they were like, oh, yeah, but that means everything's going really well. But then I have friends who have no hmm. morning sickness. So uh, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, so morning sickness is caused by the hormone um, HCG that's detected in pregnancy tests. Mm -hmm. So, um, what happens when you fall pregnant is there's a sudden surge in various different hormones, but one of those hormones, one of the main hormones is HCG. And that reaches a peak, it tends to reach a peak around about nine weeks. Now, all women that are pregnant will have higher levels of HCG. However, that how you the main symptoms of having high levels of HCG, sorry, I should have said initially, are sickness. Mm -hmm. um, however, everyone does experience pregnancy different. And everybody uh, responds to hormones differently as well. So if you are pregnant and you don't get morning sickness, the myth to dispel is that it doesn't mean anything. And lots of women get really anxious about this because they say to me, I don't feel pregnant. I've heard about the morning sickness. I haven't had morning sickness at all. Doesn't mean that there's something wrong. Actually, it can just be that you've been one of the lucky ones yeah. um, and you've got away uh, with that side effect and you will still have HCD in your urine because obviously you've had a positive pregnancy test and lots and lots of women don't get morning sickness. I mean, lots of women do, mm. but many women that don't get morning sickness go on to have perfectly healthy pregnancies. Thank you so much for setting that straight because I've had friends panicking about that and I'm like, I don't know, I just feel sick all the time. So, yeah. so thank you for that insight. And when you do feel sick, you're almost shocked. Like when, I, when I'd when speak to my patients, you know, when I was at, at the beginning of my pregnancy, I'd, I did some booking appointments. So that's that first appointment that we just spoke about um, in the first trimester. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've asked women, how are you feeling? Yeah, oh, fine. Any sickness? No. And I'd be thinking, I'd be sat there feeling sick as a dog myself, thinking, how have you not got morning 
sickness oh my goodness and then you know I'll see them like six weeks later um and everything's perfectly fine but you almost can't believe it when you get the symptoms so bad but rest assured it doesn't mean anything thank you so much for talking us through that um I'm going to run through as I said I put a call out on my social media and, and got some questions back and these are three of sort of the main questions that kept coming up. If you could just talk us through, mm-hmm. um, let's just go for gestational diabetes, gestational anemia and count the kicks. Those are three things that kept cropping up. If you can just talk to us a little sure. bit about what gestational diabetes is, how it impacts your pregnancy and, and what you might be um, offered in terms of, uh, you know, how to how to cope and manage that throughout pregnancy. Sure. So um, when we think of diabetes, normally we think there are only two types of diabetes. But of course, for women that are having babies, there are, are in fact three types of diabetes. Um, and one of those, as you've mentioned, is gestational diabetes. So what that literally stands for is gestational, meaning during pregnancy, diabetes. So you only have the diabetes during pregnancy. And if you have diabetes outside type one or type two, um, outside of pregnancy, this is not gestational diabetes and this is treated very differently okay so when it comes to gestational diabetes the incidence rate is they think between depending on where you read up but between 16 to 24 percent so that is actually a really high Mm. statistic if you think in some places it's 24 percent that's nearly a quarter of women that have gestational diabetes um and The cause of it is because the insulin requirements increase during pregnancy and the, of course, as mentioned, our hormonal composition completely changes. So these these two in combination can cause some women to get diabetes. You are more at risk if you have a family history of diabetes. If you have had diabetes in a previous pregnancy or you've had a a bigger baby above 4.5 kg, so that, that is quite a big baby. Okay. Um, if you have a raised BMI. Okay. Um, and also uh, certain ethnic origins. So Asian women are actually at a higher risk of having diabetes uh, as well. Okay. So if you have these risk factors for diabetes, they will be identified, uh, gestational diabetes, sorry, they will be identified at that booking appointment. And then it will be advised that you have something called a glucose tolerance test around about 24 to 28 weeks. Most places do it at 28 weeks during pregnancy. I actually had that this. um, I had the test. Yeah, I I, I didn't have gestational diabetes, but I had the test and you have to drink this horrible, sorry, delicious um, thick orange and you can't down it. I wanted to down it, but it's so thick that you have to just slowly drink it. Yeah, yeah. It's not the most pleasant of substances, <laughs> I'll admit. Um, yeah, lots of women say the same thing. They're like, oh, that test you sent me for was disgusting. Yeah. I'm like, oh my no, I'm really sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, so and on top of that, you haven't eaten because you're not meant to eat mm. uh, before you have it. So they say around eight to ten hours, I, I think, beforehand. Yeah, so on top of having it being, uh, you know, going there hungry, you then get fed this uh, really thick. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, but the purpose of that, that test is to identify how the body is coping, 
um, with the sugar. Okay. So then what happens if you do, if you are diagnosed with gestational diabetes is that you will then be referred on to a specialist team. So generally your pregnancy care pathway, if you have been midwifery led, will go to obstetrics led and you'll see a doctor um, that specializes in diabetes during pregnancy. And you'll also um, be seen by a specialist diabetic midwife and they will help you understand um, diabetes during pregnancy. You may be offered, depending on um, the management of your diabetes, you may be offered um, a dietary plan and advice on your sugar intake, or you may be advised um, medication to manage the diabetes. Everyone is a little bit different with this. It really does depend on, um, yeah, on, on how the diabetes is really. Okay. Okay. Great. Thank you for sort of talking us through that process. Um, gestational anemia, is that, uh, well, again, it's a similar, I, I was diagnosed with it uh, in this pregnancy with twins. Apparently it's super common in multiple birth pregnancies and it's, yeah. it's similar, but different. When I say similar, I mean, it's about your body not being able to produce enough to sustain the, pre- the, the to sustain the needs the requirements of this pregnancy so yeah with gestational anemia it's about your iron levels can you talk to us about that's that? right yeah so once again the demand for iron in the body is increased actually by the end of pregnancy your blood volume increases by up to around 50 percent wow. so that's a huge increase yeah i mean you've got a massive increased blood flow going to the pelvic region in particular is that for everyone or is that with multiple birth pregnancies that's for everyone wow. everyone wow around about 50 percent additional blood volume yeah so um of course with that comes the greater demand for iron so um you need to transport so red blood cells transport oxygen around the body and in order to produce these red blood cells the body needs iron uh, it also needs vitamin b12 that sometimes gets left out when we're thinking about anemia um and some levels of folic acid as well okay um and the most the most common type of anemia during pregnancy is iron deficient and deficient anemia okay. and that is why we test your bloods regularly throughout pregnancy because it's such a common problem for women to have um iron deficiency anemia What can happen is the increased demand, of course, you know, you've got to provide this little person that you're growing with lots and lots of blood and the demand is greater. And if we are, some women just get anemia no matter what, we know that vegetarians and vegans are more at risk of anemia um, because of their diet. Having said that, there was some research to say that actually um, vegetarians and vegans have less incidence of anemia because they're very aware of their intake and that because they're told, are you getting enough iron? Are you getting enough protein? (laughs) So they're actually, because of the increased awareness, and and quite frequently, vegans will take vitamin B12 supplements anyway because they are conscious of that. So um, yes, it's very very common during pregnancy. And if you do, if you are told um, that you have anemia, then you you'll be prescribed um, ferrosulfate. It's a form of iron. That's the most the uh, sort of first line drug choice that we have here in the UK. Right. Um, but preventative measures is really good to um, look into your diet if you can if you are listening to this in in your um, in your first trimester or even second trimester then it's really important to pay attention to your diet so lots and lots of leafy green vegetables um, make such a difference Um, pulses um, 
uh, dried apricots, even dark chocolate has iron in it. Ooh, so have a little look. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I've been using that as such an yeah. excuse. So, I mean, talking of gestational diabetes, I do. Uh, you know, I'm very mindful of that because, of course, as, as well with the increase, if the more sugar you eat, the more. Yeah risk you can put yourself as having gdm so it's a balancing act because i'm often going to the fridge thinking about my iron levels because i'm veggie um and uh, picking at the chocolate and then i'm also reminding myself no you better be careful not too much sugar when um, i had the diabetes test the the midwife was like you don't really you know don't worry about it you don't look like someone who might have gestational diabetes you don't really fit oh. that, that mold and i was like <laughs> Well, I was like, um, because she's like, you look fit and healthy and active. And I was like, well, I've also eaten a box of Frosties, a packet of dark chocolate yep. digestives. <laughs> I was like, yes. that's just today. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, the sugar cravings are quite spectacular during pregnancy, aren't they? Um, Great. Thank you so much. So, so um, the third thing that kind of came up, a lot was count the kicks and I've been told this throughout all my pregnancies uh, and I, to be honest mm -hmm. I've really struggled this time and I've been in um, for like extra appointments you know when you you call up and and go in you know I've sort of sent myself in because I can't tell yeah. which twin is where who's kicking me where how, so I'm like I don't know if I'm having reduced fetal movement or if it's just the other baby or they've moved or you know so I find that actually quite a stressful process but can you talk to us a bit more about that the reasons why it's important and and how women can manage that yeah so reduced fetal movement is something that has kind of become more um popular um in terms of like discussions I think online as well amongst women and this has probably been sparked by the um, Saving Babies Lives campaign. Um, and that has, I think, probably come down to uh, the NHS telling women lots about mm -hmm. fetal movement and, and advising that they monitor fetal movement. So it can be anxiety provoking for lots of women, because as you said, you know, when, especially when you have twins, like you said, you don't know which twin is is moving and, and you're not sure mm. and even when women women don't have twins sometimes they just aren't sure they haven't managed to identify a pattern of fetal movement mm. I mean I've been very lucky I have a very clear my baby has a very clear pattern but I know that lots of women don't have that and they have an anterior mm. placenta for example so the placenta is at the front of the uterus meaning that it creates some sort of cushion so then it's difficult for them yeah, I have that as well yeah, yeah exactly and that makes it even even more difficult so first of all just on this um although you do need to be aware of it i really would like to advise that, that women try not to feel anxious around surrounding it um and i know that that is really a lot easier said than done because you're constantly thinking about your baby but just know mm. that if you are concerned you can call us anytime you can call your midwife anytime you can go in and have an assessment just like you have done um with the twins when you yeah. haven't been sure so, it, you know, please, and I've even had women setting alarms and things like that to, to remind themselves to check on their baby's movement. So it's kind of gone from 
us not, mm. you know, asking, oh, is the baby moving all, all okay? So then we've, you know, had these campaigns of count the kicks. Um, then we're telling women yeah. actually don't count the kicks anymore. That's not a reliable way to monitor fetal mm. movement. You need to try and identify a pattern. So, you know, then it's it's changed over time. And I think that this is quite, uh, this can be anxiety provoking for women. So first of all, if you're concerned about your baby's movement, always just phone the midwifery uh, line the helpline anytime you can speak to your community midwife in normal working hours but otherwise you'll have an emergency helpline that you can call for advice if you're not sure so don't feel like because mm -hmm. lots of women say to me well I feel the pressure's completely on me because I'm the one that I'm the only one that can identify the fetal movement and if I and if I if I don't get that right I, I'm really scared that something's going to happen so yeah. pressure off if you're concerned yeah. call yeah. someone with fetal movement, we actually don't fully understand the implications of reduced fetal movement. Um, so we have a care pathway in a package, so to speak, of what we do about reduced fetal movement, whereby if you have reduced fetal movement, generally we invite you in, we monitor your baby's heartbeat, we make sure that everything looks normal with your baby's heartbeat, and then generally we send you home unless you know we ident there's some more additional needs that prop, yeah. prop up during that time. If you have yep. numerous um, presentations with reduced fetal movement, then we, or, or more than one, we tend to offer you an ultrasound scan to have a look at the blood flow to baby, the growth. Um, although it's not an in-depth growth scan like you're having yep. with your twins, we will look at the size of the baby. Um, yep. And then if you have ongoing reduced fetal movement, you will see a, a senior doctor that will be able to put a plan in place to so that you will be able to be monitored throughout your pregnancy. But in all honesty, right. reduced fetal movement, of course, there's a concern that the baby's not moving because there's some sort of reduction in oxygen. And that's why mm -hmm. we, you know, that's why we want to know about it. That's not always the case, though. And we we aren't okay. sure. We some women have numerous episodes of reduced fetal movement, and the baby's perfectly fine and healthy. And we never identify why the baby wasn't moving in utero or why mum couldn't feel the baby moving. So the top things there right. to remember are pressure off, call if you are not sure. Remember that we're here. We've got our care pathways to help you to support you, and um, we don't fully understand what reduced fetal movement actually implies. So we err on the side of caution by offering you these additional um, monitorings and uh, ultrasound scans. Great, thank you so much. Um, I'm conscious of time, and I want to try to get in two more questions. So I'm going to fast forward through pregnancy. And we're going to go to labour. Sure. And I wondered whether you could just suggest a few ways. What are the best ways to naturally induce labour? Um, you know, and, and I'm aware that hormones play a big part in, in the labour process. But how can you naturally bring on labour before having to consider, um, you know, like a medical induction process? Yes. Yeah, so this is probably one of the top questions that women ask. And uh, fair enough. Um, I can really see why I'm only 31 weeks and already I can't wait for my due date. Um, but so the thing about natural methods of induction are that 
none of them are really evidence-based or supported by research. So there are things that you can do to, like, for example, that women do like to do, like acupuncture, like reflexology, Mm -hmm. um, like raspberry leaf tea. But the actual Mm -hmm. evidence surrounding all of these things, a sex as well is another common one that's recommended to women because of the prostaglandins in the sperm. Um, But all in all, first of all, there is no evidence to support these. And second of all, I'm going to like be brutally honest here. Babies come mm, when babies please. are ready. And mm. and women often, of course, you know, and I, like I said, I'll definitely be the same. And there's no harm in trying some of these things. Uh, however, if your body and your baby aren't ready, we still don't understand exactly what send gets the body into labor there's a there's a very complicated interaction between hormones uh, between mother and fetus and the baby um we we when we check to see if you're going into preterm labor there's a special test that we can now do called a fetal fibronectin and that detects some of the signs that the, that the baby's showing that perhaps your body will go into labor it's incredibly complicated and it's not fully understood it's really not understood exactly what happens in that interaction yeah so um however it's extremely powerful and so there are different things that you can do like you know all of the ones that i've already mentioned but they aren't Mm -hmm. supported by evidence and not only that if your body is not ready to go into labor then sometimes just leaving it to do what it's meant Mm -hmm. to do in particular if you are planning a natural birth then that's probably a better option However, yep. if you are, if it's being recommended to you that you are going, that you, you will need to have an induction of labour for whatever reason, you may want to try some of these natural methods and give them a go because most of them are like harmless. Like for example, I've had actually really good feedback from reflexology um, with women and also acupuncture. Those seem to be the two in my experience, although they're not, that's not supported by evidence or research whatsoever. Just knowing what I know from seeing all the women that I've seen over the years, both of those two seem to have worked quite well. And I don't know if it's because you've gone to see someone, you've you've switched off, you've relaxed and actually that's allowed your um, hormones to uh, all kick off and work wonderfully as they're meant to, um, yeah. or if there's something else in it. So because it's all about um, you know relaxing hormones, happy hormones, mm-hmm. and adrenaline is kind of almost like a not a blocker to labour, but it can definitely um, hold hold it back almost. And so you want to reduce the amount of adrenaline in your system is that right that's absolutely correct yeah so it actually can inhibit um oxytocin so oxytocin is the main hormone that's responsible for the progression of labor and that is what we use in hospital um Mm -hmm. if women are having uh, the hormone drip that you might have heard of that's basically synthetic oxytocin so it's man-made oxytocin so that's how much we rely on oxytocin to um to bring on speed up labor And mm-hmm. we produce this naturally in our bodies when we hug, when we have sex, when we feel um, really happy. And we also produce it during labor. And it comes in peaks during labor as well. So your oxytocin in, in increases when you're having a contraction as well. So what we want to right. do is we really want to safeguard that oxytocin when it's there. But pre-labor, 
we really want to encourage it to come out. And, and the main things that make oxytocin um, come out, so to speak, because it is a shy hormone and it's easily scared off by things like um, adrenaline, higher levels of cortisol, you know, when we're feeling stressed. And not only yeah. that, that's an evolutionary defense mechanism as well, because say, for example, you were about to give birth and then there was a danger like yeah. I don't know a tiger in the distance that you needed to get away from then your yeah. oxytocin would need to be inhibited your adrenaline would need to be in full flow and you'd need to be in fight or flight mode when and get away from the danger and then once you were in a safe right. place again your oxytocin would have the opportunity to increase so it's actually an evolutionary defense mechanism and that is why those two hormones do not work together Right. You want to feel, and it's so much easier said than done, especially during this time during COVID-19 and we're in, we are in a global pandemic. So, you know, telling people to relax and switch off isn't actually sometimes the most helpful thing. You yeah. need to find mechanisms that help you to do that. And I say to women, you, if you've ever experienced any kind of stressful event in your lifetime, which most of us have, then mm. what were your go-to things? You might not be able to use those in pregnancy because mine was drinking a bottle of red wine, which is definitely <laughs> not advisable. <laughs> um, but doing other things like yoga actually have really helped me through stressful times, practicing meditation, practicing breathing. So the things that I have used throughout my lifetime to get me through um, stressful times uh, are still very much, if not more valuable now so yeah. it's about understanding what it is that you need so some some people say oh just breathe just meditate that doesn't work for everyone for some yeah. women that that looks like going and having um a hot bath with a bathroom door shut yeah. and candles on lovely for other women that looks like going out with a group of her girl mates um, meeting yeah. up chatting up and I mean now we can't do that but if you've got house party that app or whatever you know it's it looks different for different people is what I'm saying so understanding what it is that you need specifically to calm down to feel relaxed and to allow those hormones to flow naturally I remember when I was when I was in NCT um, with my first pregnancy, they took us to a table, they had all these words laid out and they said, okay, um, choose the words that make you feel really confident and calm and positive about labor because you want to you know, encourage oxytocin. And everyone had like um, home, personal belongings, natural, you know, mm -hmm. water. And I was like, drugs, <laughs> medication, <Yeah>. machines, doctors. <laughs> because I, that, for me, that makes me yeah, feel Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I was like, the worst thing for me would to be be at home in a bath. I'd be like, oh my gosh, I really don't want to be in the yeah. bath. I want to be in the hospital. So as you're saying, exactly. And there's no right or wrong way. You just find what works for you and, and go with that. And don't feel, you know, don't feel silly about that either. Like lots of women say the same things me or they want to call me and be on the phone for 20 minutes to talk through what they're going through because that's yeah. that helps them relax other women don't want to talk at all so you know it's fine if, if you want to call your midwife and run through everything that you're feeling absolutely fine if that's yeah. what helps you feel relaxed great um so one final question just a couple of minutes um on this one and then i'm going to ask you your strong like mum moment to end um during mm -hmm. the immediate postnatal period so those first few days or even that first moment when your baby's born, what kind of tests should women expect for themselves or their baby? So just that immediate postnatal period, I'm, I'm fully aware you can't talk us through the whole year postpartum, but mm -hmm. just that immediate postnatal period. 
Yeah, so when you first of all, when you have your baby, there is something that's well recognised now as the golden first hour of birth. And actually, this is supported by NICE guidelines, um, whereby we say that the first hour of life should be as undisturbed and uninterrupted as possible for mother and baby, because we know the importance of that, that immediate first hour ideally baby should be in skin to skin with mum mm -hmm. if it's not possible for babies to be in skin to skin with mum perhaps a birth partner yes absolutely possible with cesareans okay. yes so the same the golden um, hours still exist for women who are having cesareans as well as a natural uh, vaginal delivery. yes okay Yes, exactly. And you can do skin to skin in theatre, all being well. Mm -hmm. Of course, if if babies need um, a little bit of support after birth, which is very rare, but if that does happen, then of course the, the clinical needs will be prioritised. Yeah. But unless that is the case, then we should be leaving mum and baby together as undisturbed as possible. Okay. And as mentioned, if that's if mum, you know, sometimes in a C-section, mums can feel a little bit, um, a little bit shaky at times, or they 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 don't quite feel like being in skin to skin with their baby right away. Yep. Then be, the baby being in skin to skin with the birth partner is fantastic and still gets all of those benefits, such as um, stabilisation in heart rate, breathing, blood sugar levels it calms the baby down it releases oxytocin for both a baby and birth partner so you know there are there are huge benefits yeah. of skin to skin so that's yeah. that's the first thing once that golden hour is up it's up to you um you can your baby can be weighed during that time um and we will offer to give your baby something called vitamin k to prevent a blood clotting disorder again it's very rare mm -hmm. but we offer it to all babies in the uk and um it can be given intramuscularly so by an injection or you can have it orally that's something for you to decide for you to look up on okay. you don't have to have it you can decline it for your baby if you would like to okay. um and then uh, after that, we will offer a newborn check. So when at birth, we check babies over, over from top to toe. Um, and uh, of course, as mentioned, most babies absolutely fine, go straight back to mum or birth partner. Um, if we're not sure about anything, when I say we, I'm referring to midwife, sorry. Mm -hmm. So if your midwife is, is not sure, a paediatrician may be asked to just have uh, we may ask for a second opinion um, and for a paediatrician to check the baby. But most, you know, the vast, vast majority of the time, um, baby goes straight back to mum or birth partner. Right. Then, um, depending on what has happened during your birth, so depending if you've had a vaginal um uh, you might even have, have even have had a home birth or maybe you've given birth in a midwifery led unit or maybe you've yep. given birth on delivery suite with an epidural or perhaps you've had a cesarean section maybe you've had forceps pontus you know the there is different care pathways that are offered to women depending on how your baby yeah. has been born so you that will be discussed with you and you don't rest assured if your birth plan doesn't go according to plan you'll be put on a care pathway that um, covers every aspect of care that you need following up on going forward is that um all at the moment done remotely with um with the coronavirus epidemic that we're no it's not done remotely that's still face to face some so appointments where the baby needs to be weighed mm -hmm. and um, the PKU test. So this is a little blood 
spot test that we do on the um, heels. We take a little blood sample from the heel, so the the the, the heel of the foot. Okay. So the clinical stuff that's required, they're absolutely still in place. That hasn't maternity services are an essential service, and providing care for women and their babies is absolutely essential. So anything that requires clinical attention is absolutely provided. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. So women don't need to worry about that. I know lots of women are concerned at this time, thinking they're going to have less appointments. They're going to, but that's not the case. We are still very much an essential service, and making sure that all of those tests that are required are all being carried out. Thank you so much. Um, I'm aware that we've run out of time. As I said, the questions are endless. Um, I'm going to ask you your strong light mum moment, but just before that, where can people find out um, your details? Where can they find more about you? Follow you on social media, and if they've got any other questions, how can they get in touch? Sure. So I am on Instagram as the Modern Midwife. I also have a website, um, themodernmidwife.com, where I have got various different blogs um, and evidence-based information. So you can either go pop over to my website or you will also find me on Instagram and I have actually just launched a full online antenatal course if you do uh, if you are can't get your classes or you would like to attend antenatal education uh, on my website as well amazing thank you so much um so to wrap up I ask everyone at the end of an episode to talk about their strong light mum moment which is a moment during parenting or pregnancy where either you or someone you know overcame something really challenging so you know it can be you a personal experience or it can be someone else that you know or have met that's really inspired you yes so uh, to be honest with you I think about the women that I have been present at their births uh, all the time as inspiration so whenever I'm struggling with anything there's various different women that come into my mind with the different circumstances and situations so I, often I think about women um, saying to me I you know I don't think I can do this anymore and me encouraging them and mm. saying to them yes you can like keep going keep going and then you know very soon after we've we've met their baby and it, and it's been amazing so i i often think of all of the amazing women that i've met that have been presented with various different situations various different challenges and actually mm -hmm. it's, it's so reassuring for me because i think wow like women are so powerful if they can do that then um, often I'd actually use it in exercise. I think, well, I can run this additional 10 minutes yeah. um, further. You know, I can do this bit, bit more exercise. But yeah, it just comes yeah. down to all of the incredible women that I've met during my time as a midwife and the unbelievable uh, strength that women show me on a daily basis is really inspirational. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And thank you for your time today and, and your expertise. No, of course. Thank you so much for having me. This podcast was sponsored by Pregnacare. Expert nutritional care for pregnancy with you every step of the way. To find out more, visit www.pregnacare.com.